We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is The Truth Perspective on SOT Radio Network. Today, we have a special surprise for everyone. Well, in the studio today, very least, we have back with us William. Hello. Ilan. Hey there. And Karen. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Harrison Cayley. And today, very special guest. We are very excited to speak with her, Alexandra Hallaby. We're going to be discussing a whole range of topics around Israel and Palestine. Now, Alexandra is the North American spokesperson and media liaison for the International Middle East Media Center. That is an independent media collective that provides coverage in English of news from Palestine and Israel. Uh, You can check out their website at www.imemc.org, where you can also read Alexandra's writings. Also, bookmark it, check it daily. It's a really great resource, updated daily, Um, so yeah, check it out. Um, Alexandra is also an experienced journalist who's been published in NSNBC International, The World Post, Palestine Review. Uh, She studied organizational leadership with a focus on public relations at Bethel University and has continued her education through global organizational leadership courses at the University of Geneva and journalism for new media at Pointer Institute for Media Studies. She's also done volunteer work for the United Nations Population Fund for Palestine, American Friends of UNRWA, and is a member of Amnesty International. So welcome to the show, Alexandra. It's great to have you here. Oh, we had you muted there. Welcome, Alexandra. Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Great. Um, So, well, first first thing I wanted to ask you is... um, just a bit about your background, how you got involved in work for Palestine and with the IMEMC. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Uh, I had, like like you were telling your audience, uh, I had been going to IMEMC's website, following along with developments. I felt that it was the best um, information from from Palestinian and Israeli journalists' perspectives in English. And um, so when I was volunteering with UNRWA back in the um, summer during the, during the attack on, on Gaza, I um, found myself on the IMEMC website a lot. And uh, after my time volunteering with UNRWA was over, I, I decided to reach out and find out how I could uh, help I am EMC, and then um, it, it developed into a, a situation where they're they're um, they were trying to rebrand or trying to brand and reach out to uh, an American audience, but they are very small. They're a grassroots organization located in, in Bedzahor, which is a a uh, suburb of Bethlehem in the West Bank, 
and uh, they operate solely on donations from listeners, um, from uh, from readers, and from people who are interested in uh, independent news that does, that isn't bought by by corporate uh, by company or by an organization. It's just the straight news without a slant in any particular angle or without an agenda. And um, so as part of that branding effort, reaching out to the North American audience and to our, to our readers, uh, you can tell it, I do a lot of radio, right? Um, to our readers in Canada and in the United States, um, that was the impetus for creating this position of, of being a spokesperson. And it's been very important to speak to a lot of different issues um, that people may have not been familiar with. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a bit about IMEMC? Do they um, so they are based in Palestine? Um, what kind of have you ever been there? Have you ever um, done work in Israel or Palestine, or do you pretty much stick to the the news end on the on the North American line? Well, yeah, I have been to Palestine. My uh, actually, my grandparents are were Palestinians, so I am a mm-hmm. Palestinian American, an Arab American, one of those. Um, and uh, I have not been to the uh, offices of IMEMC, which are once again in Betzahur, but I will be going this summer. Um, IMEMC is always looking for volunteers, uh, international volunteers, international journalists who want to go and spend some time learning about uh, the situation and how to report accurately. That's another aspect of IMEMC is that it trains international journalists on how to uh, report um, without having an edit- a particular editorial bias or a particular editorial agenda, just facts and statistics and information. Of course, we have op-eds and features, which are opinions but of, of the writer, but um, essentially most of the reports from our journalists who cover um, the situation there in, in Palestine are from a um, unbi- unbiased place. I do want to tell you that our editor-in-chief, Saeed Benora, is uh, a native of Beit Sahur, and he was, um, I think in 1990, he was attacked by um, the Israeli soldiers in Beit Sahur, and he was um, paralyzed as a result of, of his injuries that he sustained. Um, one would think, I would have thought that that would have made him a very bitter person, but he's one of the mm-hmm. most professional, uh, unbiased editors that I've ever worked with. And he's actually received, um, lost the, the use of, of part of his body as a result of some nonsense and... Um, I, I just had such incredible respect for him. Sai Benora uh, does a lot of writing and uh, as well on uh, the org website. You can read his work there. Well, that's great. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't aware of, of his history or the history of IMC, EMC. I just recently found out about them too, so I'm really glad that I did, though. I'll be, I've been checking them out daily, like I recommended, and I, I hope everyone does, too. Um, now, I want to get into some current events, because there's been a lot going on, even in just the past month, but in the past year, 
Um, we have, let's see, there's, um, well, I guess most recently in the States, we've got Netanyahu, who has been invited to speak at Congress. Um, could you speak a little bit about that? Like, what are the circumstances around that, and what led to that decision? Well, the uh, President of the United States, Barack Obama, had a State of the Union address a few weeks ago, and hours after the State of the Union address, um, Speaker of the House, John Boehner, had sent a an invitation to Prime Minister Netanyahu asking him to come and address the Congress the um, uh, regarding the Iran threat. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I must say that that has caused quite uh, an interesting situation to occur. It was definitely a, a step away from protocol as um, normally the president would be consulted uh, if the leader of another country is coming to speak at, at you know, Congress. However, the president wasn't. So the White House has put out a number of press releases saying that they would not meet with Netanyahu when he when he comes. Um, also, it's caused a little bit of a, a, well, quite a bit of a hubbub in Israel because um, the elections are coming up. Um, Netanyahu decided uh, a while back to dissolve his uh, parliament and called for elections. And um, so that that was kind of the result of some of his ministers who they couldn't come to terms on some tax, value-added tax laws that, that would have kind of made things a lot easier for the rich investors and made things a lot more difficult for the average, everyday Israeli. Um, so he dismissed some of his, his ministers, called for elections, and now they're coming up. So he's going to be actually speaking to the American people in the middle of the elections and um, or in the middle of the campaigning process, which the people in Israel, particularly the opposition, are uh, using that situation to their advantage um, I'm not really sure what kind, what what idea you know <laughs> was to invite him without consulting anybody at the White House. I don't know why he would have um, accepted the invitation. I did see the invitation. I saw the mm-hmm. letter that was sent, and he was requested to come on February 11th, but he he responded he would he would visit on March 3rd. Amazingly, that March 3rd date coincides with APAC. Uh, conference mm-hmm. that's happening in Washington at the same time that he's also going to be addressing APAC is of course the American Israeli Political Action Committee and um, so he'll be talking to them too so it it all just kind of you know he's got a lot of stuff going on <laughs> the the uh, Israeli files or um, pe- the Americans who support the Netanyahu. Um, are excited about this. Uh, some other other people that are concerned about uh, following American protocol on these things, not so much. Well, it seems it seems to me from reading. I I don't know the statistics, but there seems to be a general kind of I don't know dislike of Netanyahu around the world in um, people, even leaders. I mean, even in, in the recent visit that he made to Paris. 
Um, apparently, he wasn't invited at first, and then there was a big hubbub about that, and then he decided he was coming because uh, Lieberman and, and I think Livney were going to come, so he decided to come too. And then in the video of when they did that little march, he was in the second row, and as you watch the video, he kind of pushes over the guy in front of him in order to, to get in the front row and pose for the cameras. So it seems kind of in character for him to to accept the invitation and be able to speak to, to the U.S. Congress. But what what uh, what do Israelis and Palestinians think about Netanyahu? Well, like is it, um, what's his popularity like? Yeah, he, he is very popular in Israel, particularly in the hawkish kind of enclaves. In the um, and in the establishment, he's a very popular uh, personality. He is a career politician, um, and uh, so yeah, he's got supporters. Clearly, he's been elected prime minister three times. So if he's elected again, that'll be his fourth um, time serving as prime minister of Israel. Um, then there are there, there's actually a very large um, group of of Israelis who are kind of um, not into big to big government or the establishment. You know, they're they're very much um, working class people um, from from both the middle class and and the people attempting to get into the middle class who are concerned with with Netanyahu's policies that have made it very easy for rich people from around the world to invest in um, businesses, to put money in Israeli banks. And um, the average Israeli sometimes feels a little disenfranchised by that. Uh, Yeah, that's one of the things happening now. Um, I would say that, yes, Netanyahu is very much disliked by a certain group of um, people as well. As much as he's liked by the establishment, he's uh, disliked by by a lot of people. Um, Netanyahu is a long-time staunch opponent of Palestinian statehood. He's publicly said a lot that he accepted the necessity of a Palestinian state, but uh, he attaches so many caveats um, that basically uh, about the Palestinian state being demilitarized and uh, Israel maintaining control over the borders and airspace and, you know, those kind of things. That uh, And, of course, Netanyahu has been allowing the, the uh, building up of illegal settlements in the West Bank in such a way that it cuts through Palestinian villages and uh, some Palestinians are not allowed access to the roads. They're Jewish only. So um, it seems very much that Netanyahu is is for dismantling the two-state solution um, and he really never puts forward anything else. That's why I think the Palestinian authorities and the PLO are not really interested in negotiating with this Israeli government um, because you know, you've got to have a partner willing to negotiate instead of dictating the rules. Um, and that's something that Netanyahu is big on. Hey, Alexandra, this is William. Hi, uh, William. 
There's a couple things also that I wanted to ask about. First one was um, <clears throat> the new U.S.-EU warning on uh, new Israeli settlements, uh, 450 of them on the West Bank, and uh, they're claiming that that's going to undermine peace prospects. Uh, and the U.S. says it'll undermine Israel's security. It just uh, sounds like more lip service um, again uh, towards Israel, and I was wondering what your thoughts about that was. Yeah, that's. Um, I think that was Jen Pisaki, the State Department spokesperson, who said that it would uh, undermine Israel's security. That's true. Uh, every time that they, uh, the Israelis, allow the colonization, the illegal colonization of the West Bank by, I think there's like half a million illegal settlers that live in the West Bank. Um, what, it, what, they, what they've done is, is they've evicted Palestinians from their homes. Israel has a record of demolishing people's homes. And um, it, it definitely doesn't help the Israelis. As we've seen, there have been um, responses to uh, this kind of tit-for-tat between individuals, what they call lone wolves, who have run over uh, Israelis and settlers. At the same time, the settlers have been responsible for the deaths of a number of children by just running them down. That's kind of the new thing, you know, is running over people. <laughs> just aiming your car and driving over people. It sounds bizarre, but that's something that's happening quite frequently. The settlers are responsible for the deaths of a number of young children, including Inaz Khalil. Um, it was a five-year-old schoolgirl that was run down and killed um, on her way home from school by a settler back in October. Um, lip service, yes, we get a lot of that. Um, sometimes the world of diplomacy can be maddening. And um, the United States uh, calling these settlements um, or the buildup of, of these, the tenders that were announced for 450 new units, um, calling that counterproductive and, and a uh, threat to Israel's security. That's true, but yeah, it is most of service. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I um, wanted to touch on a little bit about the Abbas with his um, failure to get the UN resolution for a Palestinian statehood, and then he moved along and uh, decided to join the ICC. And now Abbas pretty much represents the Palestinian Authority, and I was wondering what the implications were about the Gaza and, and Hamas side of the story. Yeah, um, well, back in, I guess, the fall, back in the autumn, I was very excited. I was hoping that there would actually be a unity, a unity government formed between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. Um, that was kind of the direction that the ceasefire negotiations were guiding things toward. It didn't happen. There have been a lot of disruptions between Hamas and Gaza and between President Abbas in uh, Ramallah, the de facto capital of the Palestinian people as East Jerusalem is occupied. Um, I think that 
it's unfortunate. But the Palestinian Authority simply disagrees, I think, a lot with, with Hamas's structure and with various ways that Hamas chooses to resist the occupation. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a politician, so I've, I'm outside that circle. However, things that I've read and reported on, that's, you know, my feeling on that situation. Um, when President Abbas decided to seek, or for the Palestinian Authority decided to seek statehood recognition from the United Nations. Um, I, I have understood from from some of the conversations that I've had that it was a bad it was bad timing that a lot of um, a lot of new, uh, advisors in the region were wanting wanting Palestine to wait until Malaysia was on this on the um, General Assembly. Um, they were wanting to wait until some friendly countries were in there uh, instead of, you know, going up against the United States, which of course would veto. That was obvious. And then we had the UK that abstained and Nigeria that abstained. So, um, I, it, you know, it was the right thing to do to go to the ICC a lot of people saw the follow-up to, you know, the President Abbas submitting, signing on to the Rome Statute and uh, looking for a session into the into the International Criminal Court. Um, people people saw that as uh, very important. Um, but they also saw it as something like a kind of, um, you know, a... a a, uh, a way for the Palestinians to punch Israel in the eye, uh, or, or those who voted. But it wasn't that. People had been, uh, the Palestinians had been looking for the session into the ICC for quite some time, particularly following Israel's very unjust and bloody attack on Gaza over this summer. So it was kind of expected, and a lot of people were looking. Um, it's important to note Israel is not a member of the ICC, nor is the United States. As right. a result of that, um, as a result of that, the ICC cannot police uh, Israel. They can't send police into Israel to arrest anybody for war crimes. Uh, pretty much, it's all symbolic, and uh, so that's where we're at right now. Uh, April first begins the uh, first day of membership to the ICC, mm -hmm. and the United Nations has backed this and supported it, and um, it's a historical moment for the Palestinian people. At the same time, it seems like um, Netanyahu and Avigdor Lieberman have come out in, in staunch opposition to uh, um, the PA joining the ICC. It seems like, even if it is symbolic, uh, they really seem to be threatened by it somehow. It does seem yeah. that way, particularly, yeah, when Israel froze the um, internet, when Israel froze the tax revenue against international mm -hmm. law that actually broke Israel's obligations that they were being uh, held held by the Paris Protocol um, to basically an occupier is responsible for. Um, making sure that the people that they're occupying have 
funding and not cut into that. So that um, has been problematic. Israel continues to hold those to hold those tax the tax revenue hostage, so to speak, and it's it's caused a terrible economic situation for the Palestinians. There's a very uh, difficult recession happening in the West Bank. Businesses are going under. Um, and so it's clear that Palestinians are being punished once more for their right to join international organizations. But it seems, it seems like uh, Israel plays, plays this card uh, often because uh, just in the uh, issues of the, of the electricity debt, um, they froze monies to the Palestinian authorities. Um, but uh, Netanyahu, for some reason, released those monies. And I was wondering if that was uh, him or what was what was he hoping to gain by, you know, suddenly being the good guy here? Well, I think he was under a lot of pressure with the electricity situation. Um both international and and um, local at home pressure to to release those funds because um, is, Israel is really smart when it comes when I say Israel I'm, I'm speaking about the current government um, <clears throat> they're very clever and crafty and they've hired public relations people like Frank mm-hmm. Frank Luntz to to guide their Hasbara program. They're very, very savvy propagandists. And, um, you know, I can't speak to what was the cause of them releasing those funds, but but I'm sure it had a lot to do with pressure and a lot to do with, um, you know, it's it's just like somebody's saying, hey, guys, we can only be hated this much by the world. It's time to pull that back just a little bit and adjust those knobs and and then look at the picture, you know, a different way. it's uh, it's it's very interesting for those of us who watch um, Israel's propaganda arm move. It's interesting to see, and it's it's never easy to figure out why a lot of things are done. But even that, if if that's the case, that uh, that even the, the Israeli propaganda machine will respond in certain ways to to pressure like that i think that is that a how far will that will that go is that uh like does that give some hope for for the future that that with enough pressure and with enough you know basically if if israel continues doing what it what it does and even goes too far could that be the breaking point where where the pressure is just too much or will will it be like uh who is the the, the Israeli, um, I think it was a politician who said that basically, if if it came down to it, Israel would take take everyone down with it or something like that. Like, what's the end game? Well, yeah, um, I do want to tell you that recently I was emailed. Uh, I have many many friends in Israel that are in the establishment that are part of the government. Um, and that's how I know that not everybody that's in the Israeli government is dead set on sinking 
the entire ship. Sometimes we feel that that ship has set sail already and there's no way to bring it back. But um, I was emailed the Husbar Handbook a few weeks ago. I've, it's can you, several... just for listeners who aren't familiar with, with it, can you explain what Husbara is? Yes, Husbara is the um, basically the, the propaganda wing of, of the Israeli government that pays or gives credit to university students to go onto social media and to um, essentially create one narrative uh, painting Israel as a victim, showing Israel as defending itself, when, in fact, we know the reality is that Israel is an occupying force. So when one is an occupier, one cannot defend themselves from the occupied who are resisting the occupation. However, many people call Palestinians terrorists, people who are defending themselves essentially from this brutal occupation, people who are uh, protesting the occupation, people who resist the occupation have become terrorists in the minds of so many because this propaganda program, the Hasbara and the Hasbaristas, the people who conduct the uh, online, the social media uh, campaigns, have painted Israel into this um, country that's mm-hmm. you know surrounded by enemies and the products of the Holocaust and I mean um, you know we, we know what the propaganda has done because so many and that it's been successful because so many people particularly here in the United States you know, will quote you that propaganda right back without any understanding or giving a second thought to the Palestinian struggle um, when I was sent the Hasbara handbook, it was, and I'm looking at it now, it's very interesting that um, basically in this most updated version, which was published and sent out after the Israeli attack on Gaza back in the summer, um, it kind of discusses you know, the changes that they've made, how to bring the world's attention back to Israel being a, a uh, defending itself, having the right to defend itself against uh, different, you know, people, different things. Um, it speaks to when not to engage, when to just walk away from people if you're not able to, you know, don't spend all your time on one person. Um it's very detailed, and it's it's uh, very interesting. Um, and I think a lot of times, a lot of these people that that are Hasaristas and those who who um, simply take you know their talking points from the Hasbara um, really believe they've they've been mm-hmm. they've drank the Kool Aid. I don't like to use that phrase very often, but they they really believe what they're you know, if you say something long enough, if you say something every single day, you start to believe it. And I think a lot of them really believe that they're in the fight for their lives, that they're surrounded by enemies, that Iran's going to blow them away one of these days. You know, they, they really believe this. However, it's, it's important to remember, Israel is the only nuclear uh, 
nuclear country in the region. So we have to remember that. But they'll never they'll never officially admit that, right? No, no, they won't. No. <laughs> but just on the topic, going back to Hasbara for a sec, I, I find it interesting if you if you go to just mainstream articles on on news websites and you read the comments, keeping that in mind. What that Hasbara exists and what it's designed to do, it's it's kind of eye-opening to realize that a lot of those comments where you see the slogans and just the the really catchy way in which the the, the memes are presented, just how many of those people are actually being paid to do that. So you'll have all the yeah. all the comments just pointing out what's really going on, and then all the responses to that defending Israel, and you know there are many very many. Uh, commenters that are paid to to post anti-Israel comments, but we know that there are a ton of people paid to post pro-Israel comments. So it just puts the whole online debate in a in a totally different light, and that's why I think a lot of people need to know about Hezbollah because I mean it's just it doesn't enter into so many people's minds that this is actually going on. It's like it's like a corporate marketing campaign um, in. You know, it just it just follows that the Israel and and its message is a product, and they're really good. Yes, like the their posters and the slogans that they come up with. I mean, they're catchy. Right, the uh, Likud's uh, current campaign slogan that was released recently in Hebrew says, "It's us or them." Um, that with a picture of Netanyahu's smiling face. And then the kind of surrounding his glowing punam, there's this, this, it's us or them. And that's kind of the mentality. And there's so many people that, particularly evangelical Christians, I'm Catholic, so I, you know, I can't understand so many times when my Christian brothers and sisters completely fall into this. We, we've got to support Israel. It's the apple of God's eye. Um, and use the Bible as kind of a land deed uh, to support Israel's ever-growing expansion. Um, but to, to go back to Hezbara, uh, you know, governments use public uh, perceptions. Government, governments use and always have um, played on fears of the population. They've played on low information, particularly people who are just not part of the process, but you know, or, or or people who have opted out of being part of the process. They they use those people. Um, some people that make it only, even though 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there are numerous news channels that are, you know, <laughs> spilling over with, with um, talking points that are basically a lot of times, particularly certain networks that are kind of being the government's uh, mouthpiece. So it's no, you know, Hasbara is is not different so much mm-hmm. from that. Um, the GOP, the Republican Party, the Republican Party in the United States has been led, its public relations have been led by a man named Frank Luntz who is brilliant and also kind of the Dr. Evil personality or so he's He's become known because of his um, involvement with the Hasbara. But he has 
Frank Lentz and his company, have, uh, which is a public relations firm, once again, that kind of tried to rebrand the Republicans as instead of being a bunch of white, um, middle-aged to elderly men, you know, the status quo in, in American politics. They tried to rebrand it as being this, under Frank Luntz, as being this um, diverse group of people. They brought in people like Mark Rubio, the the um, politician in Florida that has a Cuban background, and Ted Cruz in Texas. And these people are kind of weird, you know. Um, I mean, they're, they're sort of loopy, um, some of the stuff they say, that they're speaking to their audience, which that's very scary thought in itself. But uh, Frank Luntz helped to diversify, if you, if you call it that, the Republican Party. So then he was hired by Israel. Frank Luntz and his company, they, they test words. The word uh, or the phrase, uh, Israel is America's best friend in the region uh, was changed. I'm sure we all heard that. That was a talking point that, that every Israeli ambassador and every Israeli spokesperson that went on TV for many years would say, Israel is America's best friend in the region. That was changed to Israel is America's closest ally in the, re- in the region. And that's the current um, talk, talking point from, from the Israelis spokespeople because Frank Luntz and his company studied the, the word friend and ally and ally got a stronger response. So everything is well thought out. There are panels of people, uh, what words make you feel a certain way. It, it, there's a lot of psychology involved with, with this program. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, we had, we talked about that on the show a couple of weeks ago, just the, all the different psychological techniques that are used in propaganda and that's why they're so effective. And um, you've really, like, people really have to be aware of how their own minds work in order to be able to kind of immunize themselves against, you know, reading a really catchy phrase that just wants to stick in your head, like a, like a catchy song. You can't get out. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just good. It's a good one. You mentioned a, a couple times um, the the situation in Gaza last year, the the attack, the war. Um, could you just give us a, a little background into that? Um, like what happened and what has been the result? Like what are the what are people in Gaza experiencing now as a result of what happened last year? Well, the um, people in in Gaza are in a terrible situation. The uh, which wasn't really a war because a war typically there's there's somebody that has an, a military and another people have a military. The Palestinians do not have a military, so it was actually an attack, um, an operation, if you will. But that gets back into the Hasbara. But um, it, it was a war on the people in, in the side. I guess if one wants to use mm-hmm. it that way, but. Um, yeah, it, it look. Netanyahu was coming up on election. Uh, Netanyahu was was not really coming up on elections. He was looking uh, weak. Uh, his opposition were starting to, um, I guess, uh, the, the Israelis, like I were telling you, the middle class and the people attempting to get into the middle class were. Um, Protesting, you may remember a couple of summers ago in Tel Aviv, the huge, massive people that were protesting the economic situation. 
uh, people that were protesting the, uh, the the horrible conditions of the African migrants that have made their way to Israel and who were immediately thrown into concentration camps in the south mm-hmm. of the country in the desert uh, in appalling conditions. And um, when these three Jewish boys were disappeared and they uh, were later found dead, murdered. Uh, it was from the very beginning, before there were any details, before there was even an autopsy, Netanyahu uh, alleged that the Hamas was behind it, that the, the militant wing or the, the, yeah, the militant wing of Hamas was behind the, the killings. Um, it kind of, to me, echoed you know, fast forward two months into the, you know, there's there's almost 3,000 Palestinians killed, over 500 of them are children uh, in Gaza. And, you know, fast forward to, 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 uh, to the week after the war when the news came out that Hamas actually wasn't mm-hmm. involved with the, with the, um, the deaths. Um, Israel has gone back to that. Um, but uh, anyway, Hamas really didn't initiate the confrontation with Israel. So I guess the you know the question was why did Israel pick the fight now or then? And and you know the the answer just requires so much context. But you know I'll, I'll make it very quick. For for more than two decades, the Palestinians and the Israelis have basically been engaged in a so-called peace process. You know everybody heard about the peace process, but um, the the peace process has failed over and over and over because basically Israel was never really serious about allowing uh, a viable Palestinian state to exist, as I mentioned earlier. So instead of, um, you know, working toward that so-called peace uh, and and, and and of course there you know the the settlement expansion that I've talked about, which is again is in direct violation of international law. Um Netanyahu uh ruled out the um uh ability of, of allowing a sovereign Palestinian state to exist. All of that was happening in the lead up to the attack on Gaza in July. Um global perceptions are important. We've had that discussion since I've been on here with you, and Israel's always looking for a way to deflect, I think, deflect responsibility for the failure of the peace process onto the Palestinians, and we've heard a lot in the media, uh, people barking that rhetoric, that the Palestinians were never serious, but it's it's Mm -hmm. actually the other way, and Israel has deflected that all on the Palestinians. When you hear that a lot in the news, and especially when you have the, the Israeli spokesman come on to various news channels whenever an event like this happens. And they always say, oh, well, you know, it's the Palestinians that don't want peace. I mean, we've we've offered them so many peace plans and they always reject them. It's the Palestinians' fault. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it, that's, so how does that work? Like, what's really going on there? Right. Um, well, you know, beyond the tit for tat of the, you know, uh, right, or, or that rhetoric of right to to defend itself and all of that, uh, that a lot of people 
debate, it's very crucial to emphasize that Israel has illegally occupied the Palestinian territories for many decades. Um, Israel is actively engaging in uh, land theft through illegal settlement expansion. People sometimes call it land grabs. Um, Israel is imposing a system of apartheid. I didn't use that word for a very long time, even though um, Jimmy Carter and the Carter Center has said that Israel is an apartheid state, not unlike South Africa, not unlike the American South under Jim Crow. Um, Whenever I saw a map of Jewish-only roads in the West Bank settlements that are only for Jewish drivers, and then when Israel passed a law that banned Palestinians from riding the bus, that's an apartheid mm. state. There's no other way to to describe it other than a segregated, ethnically segregated apartheid state. And it's very unfortunate mm-hmm. because uh, Israel has, there are a lot of really, really wonderful Israelis who um, are heartbroken that their country has has become what it has. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the, let's call them the Israeli opposition, the people that that live in in Israel who do not agree with the official policies? And so who are these people and and, what kind of things are they saying? Well, the the, uh, opposition to the Likud party... um, Hatnua particularly, um, they, and, and listen, <laughs> they're called self-hating Jews on a regular basis, the mm-hmm. opposition to Netanyahu. They're called Arab lovers on a regular basis for speaking out and wow. for standing up. But their voices are not loud enough sometimes. Uh, there there seems to not be enough in this particular government Um, I think when Netanyahu dissolved the Knesset and dismissed some of his top um, ministers, um, it was because they were like, look, you know, this is, we're we're behind you, but (laughs) there's got to be a stopping point here. Um, And, uh, but but the truth of of that is, you know, yeah, there, there is an opposition in Israel, but sometimes because of the perception of them being anti-Semitic, which is a charge that a lot of people can't escape. Um, That's thrown around frequently. You know, they're called self-hating Jews. They're called self-hating Israelis. They're said to be um, supporting the Palestinian cause over Israeli security. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for anybody in, in Israel who stands up for truth and for what's right. But um, there certainly should be more. What happens to people who actually uh, push back, um, whether they're in the government or in the populations? Um, uh, do they, you know, they they are more independent people? I, I guess they um, may not be as susceptible to the propaganda, but they certainly by having a voice or... Um, you know, pushing a different kind of agenda. What is the blowback from Israel? Do they have any ramifications? 
Yes, I've heard, uh, and, you know, that's a great question. Um, I have heard of Israelis that have been terminated from employment. Uh, I've heard of, which is allegedly illegal um, in Israel, but <laughs> here's, here's a, a factoid. How does Israel, uh, how is Israel like North Korea? Israel, the, the state, owns 90% of, of the land. Um something a lot of people aren't aware of. But, um, yeah, even though it's allegedly illegal and there are laws that are supposed to protect uh, people in their place of employment, I've heard of people getting fired. I've heard of there have been fights break out. Um, you know, it's, it's a very passionate... Uh, it's, it's a very passionate cause. And um, so... On a, on a larger level, um, you know, like we saw what happened. Netanyahu dissolved his government, dismissed his minister, um, and is calling for an even more hardline hawkish uh, group. The slogan, it's us or them. Them, you know, you're either with us or against us. You know, that echoes George Bush. Um, mm-hmm. Love America or leave it. You know, those kind of sentiments that we've heard over the past. This is no different of a campaign than it's us or them. You're either, you're either an Israeli uh, who's, who is a nationalist or you're not. And, you know, that's kind of the movement that Likud, Netanyahu's party, is trying to, to put forward. Uh, we've got a, a chat room question. Uh, are you familiar with the Anatcom affair, Anatcom Uri Blau. Looks like it was a no, leak I'm of not. thousands of okay, a leak of thousands of classified IDF documents by a former Israeli soldier, Anatcom. Uh, well, maybe we can look in with, into that and talk about it on a later date. Well, they, those those were um, uh, whistleblowers. Yeah, it looks like it. Um, this was she was uh, in military service as an assistant to the Central Command Bureau, and she secretly copied thousands of classified documents and leaked them to Haaretz journalist Yuri Blau. And, yeah, that was... When was that? That was... She was born in 1987. Yeah, in 2005. Between 2005 and 2007, it looks like. Yeah, I may have been, uh, you know, familiar with it back at that time. I remember Mordecai Venunu his name sticks out in my mind of being a whistleblower who's currently in prison in Israel for, um, he was former Shin Bet, which is Israel's um, secret police. Um, it also, you know, I should mention that the Mossad, which is Israel's CIA, uh, is against Netanyahu traveling to the United States, by the way, to speak mm-hmm. at Congress. So there's a big divide between Israel's inner security apparatus, the Mossad, and Netanyahu, which could be, you know, it could be a dangerous thing. I think that um, Netanyahu's security or safety would not be in question, but when the, when and, you know, there have been splits before, but when the security wing of, of Israeli government comes out and says, you know, you shouldn't travel to the United States, and the White House says, well, you weren't invited, um, but this just speaks to the delusions of grandeur 
You know, Netanyahu is kind of this person that I can do anything. I can go anywhere. I can do what I want to. If you ever mm-hmm. get the chance to look up Netanyahu when he was a young man with black hair um, on YouTube, look at some of the debates that he had when his name was like um, Benjamin Netanyahu or something before he became Netanyahu. He's a self-made pol- career politician um, and who has changed so much. Accent. I beg your pardon? And he's speaking with a perfect American accent. Right. In those old videos. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it's, it's, which, you know, I, look, he's lived in, in Israel speaking Hebrew for so many years. You know, I can't say that that would have changed his, his accent. So I can't speak to, to that particular mm-hmm. um, theory about, you know, where, where was he born? <laughs> um, because I've known people that have went to Ramallah or to, Bethlehem, and they, you know, live for a number of years, and they they, they start to speak yeah, differently. So, you know, that happens. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you just listen to him when he was a young man debating, you know, Israel's right to exist, I think, with some of the debates, some of the talking points he came along with, um, you'll see the, the development of what we have, this man that, that exists now. Um, he's he is a, you know, he's got all these great points, charismatic leader, great orator. He um, he has all the points that, that make for a, for a madman. Mm-hmm. Alexandra, um, getting back for a moment to Mossad's uh, not wanting Netanyahu to come to Washington, um, I wonder if the security um, issue is just a, a rule. Um, you know, we've heard former Mossad leader, Mayor Dagan, speak a few years ago and say, uh, you know, Israel going after uh, Iran is a is a terrible idea. Um, I'm just wondering, and, and of course, one of the things that Netanyahu is probably going to do uh, when he speaks before Congress is, you know, draw up a little, a new diagram of, of how close Iran is to blowing up Israel or, you know, presenting some kind of uh, um, threat. Um, so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the idea that, uh, you know, Mossad being this possibly hawkish element of, uh, of Israel also um, actually does support in some ways um, a further escalation and aggression or suppression of Iran's um, sovereignty. Um, yes, I uh, I would like to speak to that, um, and it's that's very good that you brought that up. Um, the situation is, is to me has kind of played out also like this. Um, there have been the P five plus one meetings, the bilateral negotiations have been taking place in Geneva between John Kerry and his Iranian counterpart. We actually have seen Secretary Kerry um, reach out to the Iranians uh, in a way, um, you know, carrying on President Obama's mission to create diplomacy with the Iranians. You know, we lived from 1979 until just the past few years with the United States having no diplomatic relations whatsoever 
when they're on. And then all of a the sudden, there are bilateral meetings between the foreign minister of Iran and the United, Sec- the United States Secretary of State, um, the P5 plus one countries, which include Germany and China, um, are in on these uh, negotiations with Iran. The United Nations is particularly interested in um, in these negotiations with Iran. And then all of a sudden, here comes Netanyahu to say, are you people crazy? You can't deal with them. You can't negotiate with them. Trying to derail the negotiation process. And um, I think it shows distress and it shows how uh, Israel, uh, Netanyahu's Israel is concerned that Iran and and the United States um, could come to some agreements. You know, Israel is getting $7 million a day in in U.S. aid. Uh, That's $7 million a day. Um, it, it would be in, in Netanyahu's Israel's best interest to not share that money with other countries. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we just have to see how this plays out in the next few weeks. There's also a lot of news going into it that's, once again, deflecting important stories, such as children who have frozen to death in Gaza, there was a storm called Huda that moved into the Mediterranean and uh, through, through frigid air, frigid conditions in Gaza. And um, a number of people, uh, including a, an elderly person, uh, children, froze to death because they had no, they were sleeping rough or, you know, however you want to say, they had no they had no protection from the elements because uh, if you look at the pictures, they don't tell you, you know, the, the pictures don't capture the misery of the people, particularly in Shuzeya, a neighborhood of Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip, that was obliterated. Um, entire families were wiped out. Uh, one one family there there's not a person with this particular surname left um because the entire line was removed from the face of the earth. You know, you see these pictures of the damage and the destruction in Gaza, but but it doesn't give one the um full grasp of the misery, the deplorable conditions, the um electricity, if if your listeners remember, Israel bombed the electrical plant in mm-hmm. Gaza, causing terrible uh, energy shortage, an energy crisis. People that, that either, you know, some parts of Gaza get uh, a few hours of electricity a day. Some people don't get any. Uh, it's, it's a mess. It's a really a humanitarian catastrophe. And um, by talking about Netanyahu going to Congress, you know, that that's very intelligent, kind of deflecting from the actual condition of people. Um, and I think that that's, you know, something that, uh, you know, I, I'm part of. I'm part of that, that conversation myself. 
but I, you know, I do want to to mention to your list, to your uh, listeners today, to the audience, that uh, people of Gaza, um, thousands and thousands of people are homeless. Um, the uh, United Nations has run out of funding for the reconstruction project in Gaza, and um, if if your listeners are interested, of course, they can go to UNRWA unrwa.org and make a donation. But um, on that website is a lot of details about the conditions that people face in Gaza. What would the the Palestinians in general, especially the the Gazans, what would they be looking for the world to do? I mean, you know, the, the conflict has been going on forever. There's such devastating levels. Um, a lot, you know. Uh, their lives have been literally blown apart, in, in including you know people and families and things. Um, what what can the world do um, if Israel has this lockdown, and uh, how do we bypass that? Um, I'm sorry, I, I didn't understand the question. Um, what what would the Palestinians? I, you know, they're they're getting some world attention now, finally. Um, what would they want the world to be able to do for for them? What could you know the the different countries or or just factions within countries be able to um, do for the for the Palestinians or or you know even just the Gazans um, to to be able to bypass the lockdown that that Israel has um, where no aid is getting through and and uh, Good wishes don't go very far. Right, yeah. Um, it's a very good question and, and also a very good point that you just made. Um, I talk to Palestinians who live in Palestine regularly, and I ask them that question, what can I, as, as a spokesperson for the International Middle East Media Center, what can I talk about when I do, when I am interviewed? What, you know, what would you like the world to know? And... I think that, um, you know, the particularly the residents a lot of times have given up hope. They feel like the nobody cares, the people, you know, don't um, uh, have forgotten them. However, uh, I think it's important to know that um, they they also you know, want people to know that they are there, that they have a voice. The Gaisans are very educated people. They're, um, you know, because Gaza has been, is this the largest open-air prison in the world, um, the densest population in the world because they're all packed into this one little, you know, geographical region, not allowed to leave. The international airport was destroyed several years ago by Israel. Um, They're only allowed less than five miles from the coast, the fishermen or or anyone in the Mediterranean Sea. And then Israel shoots people who go past that five-mile radius. Um, uh, I've also been told by some cousins that the tunnels that became such a huge talking point from the Israelis 
and from the media. Um, that's us tunnels mm-hmm. connect. Terror tunnels. Like terror tunnels, yeah. And we, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah, Alan Dershowitz uh, was very big on the terror tunnels and talking about that. Wolf Blitzer from CNN went into a terror tunnel. Um, it's interesting. The tunnels have been there for thousands of years. There are more tunnels, of course, newer ones, but but some of the tunnels, you know, the Philistines, the ancient Philistine people, the Canaanite people, had tunnels in the area. Um, This is not, you know, these tunnels were not just created. Um, They have been used uh, for sinister things. Um, They have been used to to transport um, certain... uh, uh, kind of uh, weapons, um, mm-hmm. and those tunnels have been destroyed by the by um, the government, by Hamas. So mm-hmm. uh, Hamas is the government in, in Gaza, and they have, you know, there are various wings, there are various factions of Hamas. It's not a... Um, homogenous, it's not just this one, you know, everybody thinks the same way, kind of, we're all in this, you know, in this, I mean, it's, uh, Hamas is an organic political movement, and I don't particularly support a lot of the, um, I think a lot of times Hamas makes uh, politically the wrong decisions, but, you know, it is the elected government, and um, anyway, so, yeah, the Palestinian people, a lot of times, they want me to mention uh, things about water. I don't think the world understands that Palestinians only have access to about 70 liters of water a day per person, which is well below 100 liters recommended by the World Health Organization. In some cases, Palestinians have access to less than 20 liters of water a day. Israeli citizens... Uh, including settlers in the West Bank, consume 300 liters per day. That's in bathing, washing dishes, and drinking water, um, cooking, things like that. Um, can you imagine ha- living on, on less than 20 liters of water a day, which may not be really consumable um, or recommended mm-hmm. to consume? It could be tainted water. It could be uh, false water. Um, they they talk a lot about water because it's a problem. Um, they also want always want me to mention the separation wall. Um, your listeners may not be familiar with it. Most people are, but approximately 85% um, of that illegal separation wall, and the International Court of Justice ruled, uh, the International Court of Justice in The Hague ruled that that separation wall is illegal. Um, 85% of the wall is in the Palestinian territory. It's one of the major impediments to Palestinian access to water. That wall has cut off um, wells. Um, people who, in Palestine, you, people sometimes still in villages walk to the village well. Um, uh, it, a lot of times it has electric pump, but but that wall has cut people off from there. I mean, it's it's a horrible, terrible situation situation it's it's um yeah so you know they just kind of want the world to to know that uh they are they're limited to their access to water they can't go on these jewish 
only roads on the West Bank. Um, these new settlements are cutting through Palestinian villages and towns in such a way that a future two-state solution would not be possible because uh, where are you going to put your state? I mean, it's, it's so segmented because of the settlements. How can there be a state? Um, all of this has been, has been planned for a very long time. This the Zionist vision of a greater Israel from the river to the sea. And um, it's, it seems to be working. However, there was just yesterday a fact sheet released from the Palestinian Population Society, something like this, um, that by 2020, Palestinians will be the majority in Palestine because Palestinians are having babies at a rate much faster and many more than uh, the Israeli settlers. Even in these terrible, difficult conditions, um, you know, you've got many religious people, uh, Muslim and Christian, in the West Bank who abide by certain religious beliefs on procreation. And um, also there's kind of this uh, growing trend of they can't kill us all because we will continue to have huge families. Um, it's that's that's an, an active resistance to to the occupation. Okay. And, mm-hmm. It looks like we've got a caller, so I'm going to take it. Uh-huh. Okay. Hello. Hello. Hello, caller. Hello. Hi. Can you give Hello. your name and where you're calling from? Yes, uh, my name is Zoya. I'm calling from Belarus, but I'm in fact uh, in Israeli. I'm just studying in the university right now here. Uh, but I'm a Russian, uh, immigrated to Israel in uh, 91. So I basically spent more than 20 years there. And uh, well, first of all, Alexandra, I wanted to thank you very much for everything that you do because it's a very important work and uh, personally I'm really ashamed to be an Israeli that uh, such atrocities are done in my name and so I really hope that more and more people more and more Israelis uh, will join us uh, in our struggle against uh, war crimes uh, that Israel is doing uh, genocide basically towards Palestinians. And, and I hope that organizations like Breaking the Silence and, and other organizations will, will be more, you know, vocal and, and will have more strength and, and power to be heard and not ridiculed. Uh, basically, we are called traitors. Um, my family, uh, my relatives uh, condemn me. And basically, well, I think you're basically probably familiar with this because probably you do have Israeli friends and, and people who who actually know things like this. And uh, I myself, uh, four years or maybe like almost five years ago, uh, I was on a, on a uh, tour with Breaking the Silence in Hebron. And I personally saw uh, the conditions that people are living there, uh, how they're afraid uh, the to send the children to school uh, because uh, settlers 
and set her children, uh, throw stones at them. So it's basically, and I saw the segregation and uh, all those constant uh, military checkpoints and everything that people basically go through daily. Uh, well, yes, it's, it's, it's basically shameful for people, for Israelis with conscience uh, to live in this country and, 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 and to see what is done in the name. Basically, it's... it's Are you still there? It looks like you cut out. Oh, well. Looks like we might have lost. Oh, sorry, Zoe. It looks like you're cutting in and out. A little bit. Well, I'm sorry. I I have an awful internet connection, so it's breaking, breaks, you know. But, yeah, I I heard what you said, and and I I want you to know that that, um, I appreciate you speaking out. Um, Just like I've I've said and I often say, there are wonderful Israeli people who are um, speaking out and who speak out against the injustices that are committed in their name. Uh, I work a lot with Bethsalem. And very pleased mm-hmm. with the work that they do, with the reports, the, the documentation. Um, you know, it, what we have, we the people, what we have in common is that we are people. And we understand that the basic human interest is to have a life of peace and to have a life with prosperity and to see our children succeed and to be safe. And what um, what's, what these injustices do is... is in, in Palestine is that they they cause a resentment against all Israelis and, and it's a security risk for Israel for the Israeli people um, it, it's something that we must address and it's something that's important to address so thank you very much for your comment uh, I have a question uh, can you hear me? Am yes I, uh, yep. uh, what, what do you think what what is the future of Israel? You know, because I personally don't think that uh, Netanyahu and his kind are going to allow for any uh, opportunity for peace, for real opportunity for peace. And it's going to be basically Israel will destroy itself eventually. But uh, what do you think it's going to What's the future? You know, how do you see Palestinians basically uh, regaining their freedom and I don't know. Right. How, is it hopeful, or or it's basically going to continue for for for, for you know unforeseen you know for for undetermined time? Well, how do yeah. you see? Is there any hope for for anything besides bloodshed and genocide? Well, there's always hope. Uh, I never I never give up. You know, this has been going on a long time, all of my life. My parents' life, my grandparents left, you know, the region. Um, So this is not something new. It's been going on. We live with this. Would we know what to do if there was peace in our time? Uh, We're kind of conditioned as a people to constantly be in an emergency state. We're in a state of constant emergency. I think recently would be the recognition of Israel as a Jewish state or the law as Israel as a Jewish state was one of the most significant uh, problems for the 
for, for peace because basically it recognizes the permanent second class status of Palestinian citizens of Israel. As a response to that, we do we did see the unity the Arab unity list that was submitted of the of the Palestinian Israelis politicians uh, in, uh, MKs. We saw the, the list recently submitted for the elections. I have a feeling that uh, between Hatnuwa and the Arab Unity uh, list, the, the politicians, the Arab politicians in the in the Knesset, um, and, you know, this, this election is very interesting. We'll just have to see. I can't, unfortunately, predict the, the future, but um, more people are waking up. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I... I I wonder how many people outside of Israel and Palestine are aware that Israel has segregated schools. You know, I, I wonder these things. Do people even know that Israel has segregated schools, that Arab kids do not go to the same school with Jewish-Israeli students? Do people know that? Do they care? But, it's you know, things like that that contribute to this uh, segregated society in Israel Um are important. Well, well Israelis are divided among themselves even. You know, Ashkenazi and Sephardi. It, they, mm-hmm. they are basically racist, uh, you know, uh, inclinations even among the Israeli population. So what can you expect, you know, when... when so, so it's not surprising that they are basically racist towards Palestinians too, if, the, if they are right. even racist among themselves. So so that's, that's the... the, the the whole place is pathological. The whole, you know, the, the, there is so much pathology and so much uh, lack of conscience, basically, that uh, is presented in, in every aspect of Israeli society. And many Israelis rebel. They basically see that something is wrong. Uh, but then uh, they are being bombarded with propaganda, like, for example, what you said at the beginning of the show, that uh, when there were mass demonstrations about uh, social problems in Israeli society, and Netanyahu basically staged this conflict to uh, silence the Israeli, to, to basically divert attention of Israeli population towards something that they always unite, unite against. You know, that there is danger, and all Israelis need to stand up and unite against the Palestinian threat. And terror. Yeah, yeah, just like the current campaign slogan, it's us or them. It's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so that's that's the unfortunate thing that we are being lied to and we are being uh, brainwashed. The Israeli population is being brainwashed to to think that there is no solution, that it's all Palestinians' fault. Uh, while it, it, it's basically the biggest lie there is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so thank you very much again, and and uh, thank you for everything that you do. Tell me your name again. Zoya. Zoya. Yeah. Thank you very much for speaking out and calling in. I really appreciate it. And it's very nice to meet you, Zoya. Yeah. You too. Goodbye. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your call, Zoya. That was it's great to hear someone from Israel speaking out like that and it I think it takes a lot of courage when you see the way that 
Israelis in Israel are treated when they say something like that. So, thank you. Yeah, I was, you know, when she said that her family had had rejected her on on her speaking out, um, that you know, that kind of shows the nature of of Israeli society, but it also speaks to her um, dedication to to the humanitarian cause of standing up and speaking out and speaking to injustice. Um, and there are a lot of Israelis like that. They just don't get a platform, you know, an international platform. They're drowned out. The corporate-owned media, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, um, CTV, these organizations are... Uh, give give a a large platform to uh israeli spokespeople and and government spokespeople having um people who are going to speak out against the official israeli narrative those voices are often silenced um and you know it's it's the big business in israel hewlett packard is in israel um uh you know, it's it's a tech industry in Israel. Uh, technical weapons are are created in Israel. Countries want Israel to buy their weapons, sell. So, you know, um, money, money is is you know trumps humanity so many times. It's unfortunate, but yeah, just like Zoya, there are so many Israelis who speak out, and I always, you know, I'm grateful. Um, but you know. Isn't it the responsibility of decent people to speak out or speak to injustice? So, um, yeah, good for her. Okay, moving on. Um, another thing in the news recently, um, Israeli jets reportedly struck several Syrian army artillery targets in Syria. Um, and this was allegedly in response to Hezbollah rocket fire into the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights. And this comes after another incident uh, earlier this month where Israel targeted several Hezbollah members and killed them and ended up killing an Iranian general in the process. Um, can you give us some background on this situation? So, like, who are, the, who are the players involved and what is the current situation regarding Israel and Syria and Lebanon? Yeah, um, well, yesterday... Uh, um, Nasrallah, the leader of, of Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, gave a um, speech. It was kind of fiery, but uh, it was one of those situations where it's very political. He, you know, he was saying one thing, trying to trying to rouse the the people, but but on the other hand, uh, Hezbollah has has said officially, outside of his speech that um, they're, they're not interested in a war. They can't afford a war right now, and it's not in anybody's interest. So, um, you know, that was kind of a tit-for-tat situation. Um, two Israeli soldiers reportedly killed by the uh, Hezbollah strike. Um, in Kunetra, the, the town in Syria where the Iranian revolutionary guard uh, commander was killed uh, along with several other fighters. There is a growing um, Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the uh, um, Islamic 
front movement, which were <laughs> the situation in Syria is so confusing for everybody, mm-hmm. including the Syrian people. But uh, originally, Jihad al-Nusra was was you know John McCain's moderates, and now mm-hmm. you know we're seeing that they're very much aligned with the so-called Daesh, or the Islamic State, which, by the way, has released uh, just in the past uh, half hour, it's been reported that the Islamic State has released a video of the beheading of the second Japanese hostage, Kinji Goto Joko. Um, and there's, you know... Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure... Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's very it's very confusing. We've got uh, Bashar Assad, the president of Syria, who is a madman, who has uh, been responsible for the deaths of of hundreds of thousands of Syrians and caused the largest refugee crisis um, in, in modern times. And the, sec- the the Syrians are now the second largest refugee group in the world. The first, of course, being the Palestinians. So it's been a terrible situation created uh, by the president of Syria, Bashar Assad. And then we've got the Islamic State, who has decided that Raqqa in Syria is going to be their capital of the caliphate. Uh, and then on the other side, at Kunepra and over toward the Golan uh, area, then you've got Jabhat al-Nusra, and, and uh, the Iranians clearly have gotten involved there. So um, it's a very complicated situation, and uh, I, the only thing that I know is I think that Hezbollah and Israel both are aware that right now is not uh, neither people can afford a war right now. So I think this was posturing, and then, mm-hmm. and then unfor- unfortunately people died as a result of it. But I do think it was political posturing. Mm-hmm. What about, uh, you'd mentioned before we went on the air about a, a recent foreign policy interview. What was what was that about? Oh, yeah. Um, a foreign policy reporter, I think his name is Pepperman, uh, he interviewed, uh, yeah, Jonathan Pepperman, he interviewed Bashar Assad recently, and uh, if you, you follow him at uh, J underscore Tepperman, then you can, uh, or you can just Google Jonathan Tepperman with Foreign Policy, and or Foreign Affairs magazine, rather. And um, you can see the video of him talking about his interview with Bashar Assad. Uh, and he basically says that, that uh, Assad is delusional. He believes, you know, his own... Propaganda, and here's something that I've said privately and off the record for many years. Assad has really not been running the government of Syria. He's got very um, savvy advisors, but he's a very weak chin, you know, and that's something else Jonathan Severman calls him. A weak, he's, he's got this weak chin. He's, um, he's his father's son, and um, to me it's kind of like the George W. Bush He's the face of the presidency, but not the puppet master, so to speak. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so 
Uh, your listeners should just definitely look up Jonathan Pepperman's video of his uh, speaking about his interview with Bashar Assad. It's very revealing. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Um, maybe this is a little bit of a digression, but um, you know, over the years, reading about what's been happening in Gaza and especially lately, uh, you know, thoughts of um, the uh, Warsaw ghetto uprising during World War II in Poland, um, where hundreds of thousands of Jews were kind of cordoned off and kept in an isolated area, um, reminded me a lot of what's happening in Gaza. Um, And there's been a lot of uh, backlash whenever the comparisons are made. Um, Adbusters magazine had a piece about it called Never Again some years ago, and you had all the Hasbro types, uh, you know, coming out to say how um, invalid a comparison it, it was. Uh, Norman Finkelstein has uh, touched upon it lightly uh, in in drawing certain comparisons. I was just wondering, Alexandra, if, if you felt that the, the Warsaw Ghetto um, situation resembled. Uh, the situation as we see it now in Gaza at all, if, if you think it's a valid uh, comparison? Well, you know, there are comparisons that can be made. Uh, however, I also try to avoid... Um, it It just seems to take away from, from the terribleness of the Holocaust. You know, so I try to avoid those comparisons. However... Um, I do, Stanley Cohen, has, who's currently in prison, has made those comparisons, like you said, Norman Fickelstein. Um However, I often, I grew up in, in Georgia, in the American South, and I uh, am very familiar with uh, just hearing, basically studying Georgia history and, and seeing, you know, different uh, things. Um the American South now uh, is much more or much less segregated than cities like Chicago. Chicago is probably one of the most segregated cities in the country. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I like to compare the situation with the Palestinians to that of the um, people of color in the American South during Jim Crow or during the South African apartheid. I think those are much more... Um, important comparisons than to can probably compare the um, Palestinian situation to that of, of Jews under the Nazis. But um, some people do, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I would think that, that those are valid comparisons. But my, I prefer, because more recent, uh, because this apartheid in Israel is actually more similar to that uh, in South Africa. And it's, you know, the bloody apartheid in South Africa was a very bloody apartheid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next up. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, on the 16th, there was a, an African-American delegation that returned to the U.S. after a 10-day tour of Palestine. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that, what the purpose of the trip was, and what the results were? Yeah, that um, delegation, and I had the opportunity of interviewing Aja Monet, 
who was part of the delegation. Um, it was uh, um, led by Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors from L.A. Aja, is a po- Aja Monet is a poet and a singer. She's, she's an incredible artist from New York. Uh, who who was on the part of the delegation? Um, Professor Mark Lamont Hill was a part of this delegation of of Americans of color that went to Palestine. They were in Hebron, and it was interesting that uh, Zoya brought up uh, Hebron because uh, the situation there is absolutely um, total. Uh, separation and like she was saying the when she what she witnessed in Hebron is the settlers throwing stones uh, at the the children on the way to school have to walk with international volunteers from the international solidarity movement who are who are stationed in Hebron because um, not only the settlers but they're they're gassed on a regular basis uh, tear gas little kids, you know, walking to school. Um, Their lives are made as difficult as possible by the Israeli soldiers and by the settlers in order to completely depopulate Hebron of Palestinians. And they've almost been successful. Shuhada Street in Hebron was a very bustling um, area of of business districts and restaurants, and now it's empty. It was a Palestinian area, and they have done everything that's uh, possible to depopulate Hebron, and um, yeah, I, I, uh, so, so anyway, these, this delegation that went, um, they toured all around uh, Palestine and Israel, they were in Nazareth, and they did some, uh, some, some different, um, uh, <laughs> um, protests and and demonstrations and such and uh what they did was was historic and they stood against the occupation and um, they planted seeds of hope and encouragement in the hearts and minds of the Palestinian people by standing with them uh what's come out of it is a uh, from Ferguson to Palestine has become a meme and a hashtag. And um, I think there's a movement in the United States which, uh, among people of color and of, and of those who stand for justice uh, to stand against, to speak out against uh, violations, of, to speak out against the police state. And, um, yeah, there's a growing trend to to show the links, the historic links between African Americans and um, the Palestinian people who are currently Mm -hmm. living in a terrible situation. Like I told you, the buses that are now legally segregated. Mm -hmm. Not segregated, they can't get on. They can't even ride the bus. That's just insane. Yeah, the more I hear, the more I just can't believe it, that, that all this stuff is going on right now and that so many people are allegedly aware of it and yet it just still happens. I don't know what boggles my mind. Yeah, I but, think that maybe so many people are not 
a layer because they, they get mm-hmm. the talking point that Israel has the right to defend itself. Hamas is a, is a threat to Israel's security. They hear all of these things without giving a second thought to wait a minute, Israel is the occupier. Under mm-hmm. international law, the occupied have the right to resist. So mm-hmm. when you don't have anybody and you have a low information um, citizenry, a lot of times, who aren't aware of international law, and um, then, you know, they don't know about the, the UN General Assembly resolutions, numerous resolutions uh, that have been, um, that Israel is in, is continues to be in violation of, and they don't know that the fourth Geneva Convention on um, Article 33 on collective punishment is, is in violation, making Israel a war criminal. Um, you know, I mean, there, I present these facts on a regular basis, and, and you know, people often, uh, you know, I give them the facts. I show them where they can find this information themselves mm-hmm. to verify it, to fact check what I'm saying, and they still uh, would prefer to talk about Israel being a victim. So. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a, an anecdote of sorts about that. Um, several years ago, I read the book uh, "Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine" by Ilan Papa, and I was having a discussion with someone about it, and just kind of giving a brief overview of the book and the, the things contained in the book because the book itself has uh, diary entries from various Israelis involved at the time in the 40s and um, and just their, their own statements and their own words and what they thought and what they felt, which is um, some pretty shocking stuff, but the person I was talking to wouldn't believe it. Um, they, and so when I said, well, this is actually, this is stuff in their doc, in their diaries. Uh, you can go to, the, like, the documents are available. They're in public archives in Israel. And this guy is a is a professional historian. He's a, a scholar. He's not making it up. But she just she couldn't she couldn't go there, and she thought that he must have fabricated these documents, or these or just made these statements up out of old cloth and put them in his book. And she just would not go there. So how did you? Yeah. What was the trick to convincing her? <laughs> well, there there was none. I could well actually no. I I, I lent her the book, but I never ended up hearing. Um, her thoughts on it. I got the book back, but uh, we never had a discussion about it after that, so I don't know what she thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then there are people that are so bold as to say Israel has the right to exterminate the Palestinians because that's what mm-hmm. Jesus wants. I mean, there's a complete movement of so-called evangelical Christians, or I should say so-called Christians, who really have been led to believe that everything in the Bible should be taken um literally, and that if they don't support the Israeli um, ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, then they they don't love Jesus. You know, I, I don't get that. Mm-hmm. I don't understand yeah. it. Um, but there is that movement that exists, and it's a sizable and growing movement of of Christian support of, of the Israeli occupation. So, um, well, you know, it's something that we're going to have to look at. Mm-hmm. I wanted to come back to something you you had said about Hamas, and basically the the different um, Hamas is like a, a, 
a growing or changing or fluid uh, movement. So there's obviously a lot of different opinions and thoughts on what should be done and what what shouldn't. I was wondering what the just if there's if you have any thoughts on or um, any conversations you've had with ordinary Palestinians, what they think about Hamas and specifically about the rocket attacks, because we hear from the Israeli side all about these rocket attack, attacks, and that's the reason that Israel needs to defend itself is because you know all these thousands of rockets that the that their new Iron Dome system you know takes out so many of them, and it's just such a threat to 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 Israelis, even though you know they can fire thousands of rockets and not not have a, a you know a single casualty. So um, like how do how do Palestinians that see that situation? Because it seems to me that that um, these rocket attacks they almost seem to me like a just a, a statement um, because they really aren't targeting any viable targets, even civilian targets. They just get fired off and kind of hit the street with a little puff of smoke. But at the same time, those attacks are then used by the Israelis as a justification for for real attacks that kill hundreds of people. So do you have anything to, to speak on that? Yeah, um, well, uh, Israel's policies and Israel's attacks on the Palestinians build constant support for Hamas in Gaza. Many people who at some point would not have supported Hamas, which is an Islamist movement with uh, roots in the Muslim Brotherhood, um, you know, people that would not have supported that type of, you know, religious um, government who wanted more of a secular, I guess, type of government. They have been pushed toward Hamas because of Israel's constant attacks. But the average Palestinian is not a politician, and they don't care about politics. Um, the average, uh, it's important to know that 66% of Palestinians live in abject poverty, and that's defined by the, by the um, WEF as less than $2 a day. Can you imagine, I mean, if, would you even want to try to live on less than $2 a day? Um, by contrast, um, Israelis enjoy an average per capita income of nearly $60 a day. Um, so, you know, the unemployment rate in the West Bank is like 19%, but check this out. In Gaza, the unemployment rate is like 40%. Um, private sector unemployment in Gaza is, is like 85%. These are things that um, Palestinians are concerned with. Where are they going to get their meal from? When is the next attack on the Palestinians going to to happen? When is it going to occur? Um, there's so many have been made homeless. Um, um, so... Uh, you know, I, I would just have to say that the majority of Palestinians are not concerned with, with Hamas or the Palestinian Authority. Uh, they're more concerned. Here's the thing, um, and I should note this, Palestinian Christians or Muslims or Baha'i or, you know, whatever religion, because it's a, in the Arab world, religion is very important. It defines who a person is. If somebody is Christian, then they're going to be a religious Christian normally. What we're seeing now, fortunately, are movements of humanists in the Arab world or atheists in the Arab world. Those movements are being suppressed by some governments. But, um, you know, I think that that's pluralism, and, and it's really democracy at its best whenever 
uh, all different points of view and all different religions or non or, or people that are not religious have protections. Uh, I would like to see more of that, but um, mm-hmm. it's important to note that Palestinians, regardless of religion, are Palestinians, and I think that that's something that trumps, you know, politics. It goes beyond, uh, transcends religion, and, it's, you know, there is a nationalistic movement of Palestinian people in general just because of what has happened with the occupation. So, um, and they're collectively blamed. Collectively blamed and collectively punished. Yes. Yeah, there's no, uh, Israel gives no uh, distinction between Palestinian Christians or Palestinian Muslims. Uh, the Palestinian is the key word, and all are living under this oppressive, brutal occupation. Uh, that's why oftentimes when when Christians, particularly American Christians, uh, blindly support Israel, I'm reminded that these clearly are people who don't care that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Palestine. Mm-hmm. And um, their support of Israel over the Palestinian Christians who are suffering such a a repressive life because of the occupation. Um, You know, I I don't don't know. I've heard the call from Pope Francis when he was in Bethlehem and he prayed at the wall that it would be destroyed. I think that all Christian people, all people of conscience should pay attention to that uh, call from Pope Francis and should reject that terrible separation wall. Karen, you were going to ask something? Well, I was I was going to go back to Hamas, but if we want to move on to I was wondering, uh, because Hamas, you know, is, is throwing missiles at Israel, they aren't they aren't very effective. They aren't um, you know destroying much of anything. Um, and and if as you say the Palestinian people are not political and you know they they don't seem to have uh, a big following for Hamas or not a following from Hamas. Um, well, why, they do have a, a following they, in, in, in Gaza. Why? Why are they? You know, what what does Hamas think it is actually doing? If if it is, you know, is it a token kind of thing that, or is is there, um, you know, something a little a little deeper <clears throat> going on there? Um, well, you know, Hamas filled a, a, a space. That was created by the occupation. Hamas, um, like I said, it's an Islamist, uh, Salafian type of um, movement. And it's also a a government, a political movement. So, you know, in in Islam, and I'm not an expert, but in, you know, my understanding is that in Islam, there's no separation between uh, the religion and, and the government, that they're one. And so um, that's the movement. Uh, the overwhelming majority of, of Gazans are, or Palestinians in Gaza are uh, Muslim. And uh, they just had the training camp for the scouts. 
for the kids uh, in um, Buzza this past week. The scouts had the the winter jamboree, or you know, if you will, and that's the scout that's supported and run by Hamas. And so when people, you know, there were videos of these kids with plastic weapons, um, wearing ski masks, and uh, with green Hamas flags, and uh, that was shown out of context in uh, some of the Western media, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, but, but I mean, they're, they're re- actively resisting the occupation. They have every right mm-hmm. to do that under international law. Okay, thank you. And we don't see the pictures of the, the young Isra- the Israeli kids, you know, writing messages on the, the missiles that are going to be sent into Gaza. Um, also, something else, that, that, you know, I want to mention because I, I know that we're coming up on the end of the show. Um, mm-hmm. There, There's this situation recently, and your audience can go to imemc.org to read some of the articles on the um, kidnapping that's been going on. And, and, I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but it continues to happen in the West Bank. Um, the Israeli soldiers kidnapping children, kidnapping young adults kidnapping elderly Palestinians from their home in the middle of the night uh, with chopped up charges against them. And then the family is expected to pay this exorbitant fine to get their family member out of Israeli military jail. Um, This has been a growing trend uh, within within the Israeli military uh, in the West Bank, um, house searches without warrant are very uh, common, um, arrests and imprisonments without charge or trial, torture is extremely common, assassinations, extrajudicial murders. Uh, these happen quite frequently by the Israeli military against the Palestinian people, including children, live fire, there was a 15-year-old boy yesterday at a demonstration in the north part of the West Bank who was shot in the leg, a 22 um, gun from an Israeli soldier. Uh, and, and, and that was a child, a 15-year-old boy that was participating in a demonstration. They have demonstrations every Friday in a lot of the villages in the West Bank. I think that was in Berlin or Nilin, uh one of the villages in the north part of the West Bank. So um, a lot of Israelis actually uh, travel, a lot of activists, uh, Israeli activists travel to these demonstrations. It was at one of those demonstrations that Palestinian uh, Palestinian Authority Minister Abu Ayn was uh, actually killed by an Israeli soldier. Can you imagine what the response would be were a member of the Israeli Knesset, uh, an MK, killed by Palestinian uh, it would have been an international story. However, the, the unfortunate demise of Palestinian Authority Minister Abelain received very little in, international um, news when he was murdered by an Israeli soldier at mm-hmm. one of those demonstrations. Well, speaking of um, <clears throat> gross hi- hypocrisy, um, you know, 
even more horrific than the Paris shootings themselves. I, I think has been the uh, the wave of um, Islamophobia and attacks uh, that have been occurring um, in Paris and in other places. And um, you know, it just reminded me of Netanyahu's saying after 9/11, you know, it's good for Israel. Uh, I wonder, because I, I know we have a, a caller waiting to speak to you, but I wonder if you can maybe make a, a short uh, summation of, of your feelings about how uh, the events uh, in Paris might have a ripple effect or not. Well, let's let's go to the call and, and we'll hold that mm-hmm. for afterwards. So it looks like we've got Bahar on the line. Bahar, where are you calling uh, from? Hi, I'm calling from the Netherlands. Um, oh, welcome, Alexandra. Hi, thank you. Alexandra, first of all, I'd also like to thank you a lot for your, for all the work you've done. I mean, I've been following what's been happening in Palestine for a long time, and it's really, really horrible what's happening over there. And as an Afghan myself, you know, what's happening in Afghanistan and in Iraq, it's just, you know, how these people are treated, it's, it's really heartbreaking. And I wanted to ask you, um, what are the best ways for us to help the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nice to meet you, Bahar. Um, yeah, I, I, I've i been surprised at how the Islamic world has been so so quiet while the Palestinians have been butchered at the yeah. hands of the Israeli military. It's, it's really been uh, disheartening that the Islamic world, particularly because uh, Al-Hud is such a holy place in, in the world of Islam. It's sad that more of the Islamic world has just been so quiet, particularly governments. I mean, that's, that's been terrible. Uh, what people can do to support the Palestinians, to actively support the Palestinians, um, is to just become educated and aware of what's happening uh, in, in there, and also in Iraq and in uh, Afghanistan, uh, where, where terrible things are happening. In Pakistan, where the Taliban have uh, just uh, yesterday or the day before, killed so many people at yeah. uh, at a mosque. Um, all houses of worship, even you know, all houses of worship should be respected and should be protected. Uh, um, what we're seeing with the Taliban is killing all of those children at the school in Pakistan um, is, is a resurgence. Yeah, what we're seeing is a resurgence of the Taliban in that region. We're seeing more people that are that are going toward the Taliban and supporting it because of the U.S. drone program that's that has randomly killed uh, citizens and civilians. Um, the drone program is stuff. The U.S. drone program is something that should be examined very closely uh, for by everybody in the world to see what's happening with the new uh, weapons of war against innocent people all over the the world, but particularly in Afghanistan and Yemen. Um, and also, I would you know, love for you to go to our website, imemc.org, follow our news, um, support us. We're financially supported by uh, readers, and we have a very tiny budget. Um, yeah. So uh, any kind of financial support to us continues to help us be editorially independent, uh, and present news from Palestine in English, which is very important. And um, making donations to UNRWA, the 
you and RWA, another way people can help, because they take care of 5 million Palestine refugees. All right. I'll do that for sure. Thank you, Valar. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you for the show. It's great so far. All right. Thanks, Bahar. All right. Goodbye. Bye. So, Alexandra, uh, before we wrap up for today, did you have anything to say about Ilan's comment about the the recent kind of, there's been a, a wave of anti-Muslim attacks, threats, demonstrations uh, going on you know, in various countries in Europe? Uh, have you been following that? Do you have any comments on it? Yeah. I have seen that. Um, well, it's you know no wonder when when Muslims are vilified uh, mm-hmm. so frequently in our media that people um, you know are a lot of people don't know a Muslim person. So uh, you know I, I don't know. I mean the vilification of anybody is is terrible. We saw what that what happened with the vilification of Jews and Gypsies or Roma people in Europe at one time. Um, I, I just, I think it's dangerous. I'm sad. It saddens me greatly, particularly in Germany, the Pegika movement of the neo-Nazis. Uh, all, all of that is, is extremely unfortunate. The UK IP uh, in the UK that's extremely nationalistic and right-wing in Israel, the uh, right-wing nationalistic Likud and uh, the Habayat uh, Hayyahudi, the home of the Jews, is a growing political party in Israel. Um, Be'etenu, uh, Yisrael Be'etenu, another nationalistic right-wing Zionist uh, movement that, that endangers so many people. I mean, uh, these, these type of anti-Islamic uh, movements, they're scary and they're dangerous and they're kind of repulsive, you know, they're they're very repulsive because what they do is further separate people um, and, and they're doing governments, bad governments, and you know, there are bad governments, they're doing bad mm-hmm. governments work for them yeah. by separating mm-hmm. people, by deflecting from uh, economic situations in countries and by keeping uh, the people um on that that opium, you know. Mhm. All right. Well, I guess we'll leave it there. Um, I just we all want to thank you so much for for being on and for doing what you do. Um, just for to reiterate for our listeners, the website is imemc dot org for the International Middle East Media Center. Um, so thank you, Alexandra, for coming on. Maybe we can have you again sometime because. It was a pleasure yeah. speaking with you today. Thank you, Alexander. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you all so much for having me. Oh, no, thank you. And thank you to our callers, Zoya and Bahar. And we will see you again next week. So everyone take care. Check out the IMEMC website. And, yeah, good day, good night, good afternoon. <laughs>